Welcome to another edition of Market Impact Insights, your podcast source for business leadership perspectives to help your business grow. Hear from experts in marketing, sales, business strategy, and more with practical advice for business success. Make sure you won't miss the latest episodes by visiting marketimpactnow.com. Now, here's your host, Dan Albaum. Welcome back, everyone, to another great episode of Market Impact Insights. Today, we're going to focus on the essence of leadership, and a really critical part of that essence is versatility in leadership, versatility in taking your leadership skills, your marketing leadership skills, in this case, across markets and different customer segments. And we have a dynamic leader joining today, Julie Dexter Berg, who really embodies that versatile, effective leadership across all those markets, across segments. Julie is currently Chief Marketing Officer at Prevoro, and Prevoro is all about enabling people to trust and control their electronic devices and protect their sensitive information, something we're all thinking about quite a bit these days. But just going through some of Julie's leadership background, so impressive. She served as chief marketing officer at Cricket Wireless. Uh, That's a $3 billion wireless company and really in a turnaround situation uh, for Cricket. And then as part of them uh, joining and being part of the AT&T family. Prior to that, Julie, an entirely different space, executive vice president and chief marketing officer for Super Value, a Fortune 50 grocery retailer. That's a $44 billion retailer. And this was all centered around the promise of helping America eat well. Prior to that, additional consulting assignments and also serving in very senior leadership roles within the U.S. West and Media One wireless and cable experience. And uh, that was as a chief marketing officer there. And prior to that, serving as the executive vice president and general manager at AirTouch Cellular, uh, which really was a follow-on for U.S. West New Vector Group, and really the predecessor for Verizon Wireless. And uh, in that group, an $800 million revenue group, uh, generating hundreds of millions of dollars of cash flow. I was part of Julie's organization there. I can attest to her dynamic leadership. So after a while, reconnecting. Julie, what a pleasure to have you join Market Impact Insights. Well, thank you. It's been fun to reconnect with you, Dan. And, you know, covering just that that diversity in your background and experience, I have to go back to the beginning when you started out on your career. What really inspired you to focus on marketing? What was there about that that just had you zero in and pursue that marketing path? And have there been some big surprises and revelations for you along the way? Uh, yeah, so I, you know, I guess the, you know, the impetus for why marketing um, kind of goes all the way back to a consumer behavior class that I had uh, at the University of Oregon, and a guy named Roger Best, who I have kept in touch with all these years, and he just, you know, captured my imagination about bringing together sort of, you know business results, business success, you know, leading market share, revenues, profits, et cetera, with this, the softer side of, 
you know, psychology. And, you know, I don't know if you remember, but back in the 1980s, which is when I graduated, you know, there was this seminal book by Reason Trout on positioning the battle for your mind. Remember that? Yes. And I just, I just thought that was fascinating and wanted to be a part of it. So that's kind of what inspired me to jump into marketing. And I, you know, I gravitated to consumer packaged goods. And my first job was, um, well, my first job was with Nally's Fine Foods in Tacoma, Washington, which was a regional food producer and marketer of chips and snacks and canned products and bottled salad dressings. Uh, And then I spent 10 years at Carnation Company, most of that time in pet foods. So things like Mm -hmm. Mighty Dog and Frisky's Dry Cat Food and Come and Get It. So those were all really fun brands because they, you know, were competitive, all competitive categories. And, um, and it was all about positioning and knowing your customers, segmenting your market. Um, and it was really fun. So that was the first 10 years of my marketing career. And I think it really set the stage and gave me really good, um, sort of the basics about how do you segment and go to market for all of the different uh, companies that I worked for, big and small, uh, over the next 30, 40 years. Yeah, you know, I think that's so true, Julie, as you're describing that foundation in consumer packaged goods. And that's something you and I share because I started my own career also uh, at General Mills and Cadbury Schweppes, kind of in a similar Mm -hmm. realm, everything from... uh, uh, oatmeal products to uh, applesauce. But you know what? Um, I, I do think that, you know, what a foundation in terms of looking at a broader consumer market, a lot of the discipline, and then carrying that into more of the technology. You can start getting into more of the uh, B2B, even B2C within the technology realm. And I do feel like that that is a great foundation. So uh, there you go. Another thing that we share. Yeah, um, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, You've led very large marketing organizations and it's all about the pursuit of optimizing the impact of those brands. What do you think makes that so hard? And what do you see as being critical for developing and nurturing really successful brands? Uh, It's such a big question. Um, And I think probably the best visual, and I wish I could like, share a slide with you. Um, but there's this vis- there's this um, there's this visual that says, you know, basically it shows a company and all of the, you know, the functional areas of responsibility of which marketing is one. And it has like brand coming off that. And and that is in many organizations that's, you know, brand is sort of managed under the purview of the marketing department. But a really good company has brand that emanates through all of those functional areas. So sort of brand is part of HR, brand is part of finance, brand is part of sales, brand is part of manufacturing. Every functional area kind of embodies the tenets of the brand as set forth by by marketing. And I really love that mindset. And it's now having said that, it's very, very difficult to achieve because most companies just don't operate that way, right? Um, But if you have a powerful brand like, you know, Apple, Apple is like 
an amazingly powerful brand. And you can bet that nothing goes on in that organization that doesn't, you know, check off with, you know, is this on brand for Apple? Is this something that Apple does? Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I really love that. And it's, it's very hard to achieve in companies that really don't think that way, or that's not part of their DNA. So, you know, that's the challenge as the, the head of marketing or the chief marketing officer is to um, drive that through the company and get, and get people to understand. So let me give you sort of like a recent example at Provoro, which is a, um, a technology company. It's uh, driven by the product development and the engineering folks. And I had, you know, it's very, pro you know, if left to their own devices, it would be very product driven. It's like, yeah. Here's the set of requirements. The product must do this, that, and this other thing. And I remember sitting down with our CTO and saying, you know, yes, we have to have excellent products that do these things, but that in and of itself isn't enough. We also have to have a strong brand. And it's the combination of a strong brand and a strong product that will win in the marketplace. And you can't have one without the other. And it was... You know, I mean, I, I think I, I won him over, but you could tell that that wasn't his, um, his go-to place to be, you know, because as an engineer, he wants engineering excellence and product superiority yeah. and brand yeah. is just not something that he thinks about. So you really have to have the yin and the yang, especially in these B2B companies, because it's just not their natural tendency to think about brand. Yeah, that's a great example in terms of the the product and and trying to get out of the trap of uh, focus on just features and you know we used to call it speeds and feeds was yeah kind of right the term in the past but but then also something else you said which is if you're truly embodying the brand across all aspects of the organization then right your your job uh, was really to get other C-suite and CEO, right? They really, really need to get it and get mm -hmm. behind it to truly embody that, right? Beyond even the product into those other areas of human uh, resources and uh, you know, recruitment strategy and also onto finance and to other aspects of the business. Yeah. And you, it, it takes a, a, a certain amount of bravery really to stand up and say, that is not on brand for us. We would never, you know, like, let's talk about a recruitment strategy as an example, you know, let's just say, I mean, to be able to stand up and say to an HR leader that, you know, that's just not consistent with our brand. It's not consistent with our brand values. It's not consistent with our, with our why. And so, you know, you, you do have to be brave enough to stand up in those, in those conversations and, and, be the, you know, the, the brand voice internally. Now you've mentioned the importance for marketers to quote, understand the why. Can you share a little bit more about that? Yeah. So I, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge zealous fangirl of Simon Sinek. And he was the one in the, I don't know, the late nineties. I think he, he, he coined this, this phrase, start with the why. Um, and I just loved his message. And, and basically it's this, 
company or people don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. So people don't buy just a product. You know, they're going to get behind the why. And those are the brands that are sustainable and endure over time. Patagonia has a great why, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And who doesn't love Patagonia? I mean, it's a it's a paragon of a very strong brand. And the same with Apple, you know, the why is behind the design of what they they, you know, anybody can buy a you know, a, a cell phone, but the Apple design, it's the why they do it is just to have a beautiful, beautiful design and customer experience. So um, I've really gotten behind that. And, and in all of the organizations that I've been involved with to really focus the team on the why, what is the purpose of this brand? Why should employees get up you know, every single day and go to work and be energized and inspired. What is our why? So anybody can make dog food, but not everybody can make, you know, you know, a a special dog food that's designed just for the needs of small dogs, as an example. So um, I I just, I think that's a really great way to think about um, your business and your brand is to always start with the why and make sure you know how to differentiate that from the the what and the how. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it even in the last couple of years, Julie, it seems like the other thing that comes into play there is this whole idea of social responsibility. And it seems like not only the the consumers, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it's B2B or B2C, there seems to be more of a care about or interest maybe in kind of what what from a social responsibility standpoint, what is really behind that brand. But then also from an employee standpoint, it seems like we're, you know, we hear a lot about what we've been going through with this pandemic and the recent great resignation. People are stepping back, they're reevaluating. Yes. And it's like they're caring more about some of those things too, in terms of making choices of who they want to work for, right? Which is part of mm-hmm. their personal brand. Don't you think it's become a lot more personal uh, priority for people? No, that's a really great point, Dan. I mean, certainly amongst, you know, the the twenty somethings and the thirty somethings, they, you know, their mindset is quite different than, you know, certainly mine was when I started working in the nineteen eighties. I mean, they don't wanna spend their time and their energy and their brain power behind something that's, you know, that they don't believe in or align with in terms of their own personal values or personal code. And um, so, you know, really understanding that is super important. Um, And I think that's another thing, you know, just to bring it to life with my my current experience at Provoro, you know, we're a very small company. As a startup, we can't afford, you know, it's the war for talent. We can't afford... Yeah to pay what, you know, these in-demand developers and engineers could command with Google and Meta and Microsoft, certainly. And so we're appealing to them around the chance to kind of change the world around um, allowing people to trust and control their electronic devices in this increasingly surveilled world, right? Everybody's listening. So, um, to really get them um, to understand our why and and to be 
part of something bigger um, to to really take ownership and and have a hand in how this company grows and develops and you know and I think we've been you know it's tough certainly um, because it's difficult to compete against uh, wildly better salaries but yes. we have been successful in getting some of these younger people who believe and they're very talented and they just want to make a difference and it's been you know they inspire me uh, when I when I talk to them and uh-huh. uh, I I, I I just think it's it's a very different world right now in the war for talent and and trying to tap into um, kind of what motivates these younger people. I know I sound like a really ancient person, but I mean, <laughs> but, it's, but it's true. I mean, it's yeah. the, their their mindset is so different than mine was certainly, and perhaps yours. Yeah, thirty years ago, it's really different. Yeah, I think the the aspect of a more materialistic uh, orientation, you know, the dynamics really changed. And and for marketing leaders, any leader actually, you know, the reality of multi generational teams, right? And and what uh, is going to be necessary today to compete for talent is you uh, spot on, very different, uh, and being able to offer transformational impact. The ability to do that becomes really, yeah, even more important. So uh, definitely can relate. And we're dealing with different generations and different expectations there. So that is so true. And the other thing that uh, probably has evolved is when we think about markets and customers and this notion of segmentation, it feels like we've got a lot more tools available, right? For those deeper segmentation analytics. How have you seen that evolve over your career? Do you have any new perspectives on that? Um, uh, I don't really have any new perspectives other than that, you know, I'm, it all comes down to understanding how groups of customers are different based on their, their needs. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty basic. Um, but the, but what's different today is that the tools to identify, segment, manage, measure are very different, far more sophisticated than they were years and years ago where you relied on, you know, old time quantitative research, really. Um, But there's just so many more tools today. I mean, it, it boggles the mind. I don't, you know, I don't have a cookie cutter approach other than to say that it's really important to segment and micro segment, you know, uh, in the B2B world, certainly beyond government and enterprise and consumer. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to, mm-hmm. or, or beyond industries, you know, a lot of, a lot of people talk, well, it's, you know, our segment is financial. Well, that's not good enough. I mean, it, you have to get many layers below that to really be an effective in your sort of marketing outreach. Um, so I think just in summary, the, the fundamentals, the fundamentals remain the same, but the tools to go after it have really exploded, which is great. It's, it's great on the one hand, but it's also overwhelming on the other, because how do you sort through the, the marketing, the marketing stack? It's just, 
you know, I find it overwhelming most days to like figure it, that out. <laughs> it is. I think we can all relate to that. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you're talking about um, just that, that crisper definition um, beyond these really broad characterizations. And it really even comes down to um, understanding your audience and where I see it really play out a lot, Julie, is just around content. We hear all the time importance of uh, developing and, and generating content uh, to create engagement. But the thing that we're finding out is volume of content without relevance doesn't get you very far. And to be relevant right. means understanding that specific audience. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, yeah, there's, yeah. there's so much out there around content strategy and, and you just, you really need to understand what people are looking for on their, on their journey, right. On their discovery journey. And, you know, and trying to not do, trying to do things differently than your competitors are doing and not just pump out the same old stuff. Right, right. Now, that's a, that's a hard thing to do. Right. Especially, you know, in your case, you know, you, you've come into roles in just vastly different companies that are really focused on different segments and in different markets. And so an example, you've been in technology driven, maybe more product driven businesses, but then you've also been in very more retail service experience type businesses. Uh, do you see much of a difference in terms of the dynamics as you were developing your marketing strategies there? Or are there some common threads? How, how, how do you see that in terms of that whole span of different environment? Well, it's very different. I mean, you know, just for example, at Cricket, um, you know, we didn't do, there was, there was no content strategy at Cricket. I mean, that wasn't even relevant. What was relevant um, and, and so very fulfilling about the Cricket experience is uh, to be able to segment the market and really zero in on a market that the, the big guys had largely forsaken. And that was the lower socioeconomic, largely, mostly, you know, multicultural segment, you know, the lower end of the spectrum on wireless um, that had previously been prepaid, but, you know, they, you know, they didn't have financing choices. They were unable to get the latest and greatest phones. And so what we did at Cricket is said, you know, you are our market. We don't care about going up market. We're going to zero in on this market and we're going to love you to death. We're going to figure out how to give you financing plans so you can get the latest iPhones. You don't have to have these, you know, crappy flip phones. We're going to give you um, price plans and financing options that are affordable to you. We're going to give you bridge pay programs so that, you know, if you can't make a payment one month, we're going to bridge you to the next one so you don't lose your phone. I mean, all of these things and this market, they were so grateful that we recognized them. We heard them. Um, it was it was truly one of my most gratifying career experiences and the power of segmenting the market, of listening to these customers mm -hmm. and doing everything in the company to make sure we heard them and we gave them what we wanted. And we were very rewarded for them because we didn't you know, cricket, we didn't have the money to do the big TV campaigns that, you know, AT&T and Verizon and, and T-Mobile were doing. But we, you know, at the time leveraged this burgeoning, you know, social media channel and they were all over social media. So, yep. I mean, it was, 
you know, it was just, it was an, it was a point in time where everything worked and we were able to grow share in a really tough and competitive market, as you know. So I, so it was, it was a great experience and it was one where, you know, content even, I wasn't even a part of it. It was really knowing your market and developing kind of the four P's, your pricing, your product, your, you know, promotion, your retail strategy, um, and your product to, to deliver what they really wanted. Um, so just really a, a great outcome. And, and as you know, we, you know, AT&T bought cricket, um, yep. to be able to fast track their entry into that, into that prepaid space. I think the ultimate validation for your yeah. success, right? Yeah, it was. And turning it that was- around and, and intentional and scrappy is what came into my mind as you were talking yeah. about that and resulting yeah. in, in, in that transaction. Yeah. So, and I, mm-hmm. yeah. so from a leadership perspective, you know, you've, you've been in marketing leadership roles, Julie, but you've also been in even broader leadership roles where you were managing the whole spectrum of functions within organizations. When you think about that and you think about exceptional leadership, as opposed to just good enough leadership, what, what do you think are the key ingredients to get to exceptional? Um, you know, I think it starts with the vision and and kind of rallying the team around um, around it, right? It's like so, and it sounds pretty basic, but really um, sort of taking the goal and the vision for the organization and bringing it to life. Every single day, every time you talk to people, reinforcing where the company is going, you know, what's the opportunity, where's the company going, what's the, what's the goal, in what time frame, and importantly, how does, how does each team leader, how does their work and their plans like ladder up to the overall goal so that everybody is working together, all oars in the water, rowing in the same direction, um, and then you just have to communicate like crazy. Every single moment of every single day, you have to reinforce it. It's, you know, we used to laugh about the power of 10. It's really the power yeah. of a hundred. I mean, you just cannot say it enough because people lose sight of, you know, their day in their daily work, they lose sight of, well, why am I doing this? I'm beating my head against a, a brick wall. This is just a stupid project and a stupid assignment. Um, and you can't let that happen. You really have to make sure that everything connects to the overarching goal to get to make sure you have sort of this shared esprit de corps, this shared sense of excitement, this shared sense that we're all in this together to accomplish this goal and we're going to celebrate when we achieve it. And I again, those are words that sound pretty basic, but putting them into action and really living and breathing it, I think is really the essence of leadership. Um, And I guess a sort of a secondary message is to make sure that you understand what people need to be successful and you ask them, you know, what do you need to be successful? Well, I need a stand-up desk. Well, I need, you know, I need to be able to, um, work more from home. Well, I need more connection with uh, the product development team. 
So whatever it is, you know, make sure you understand it and make sure they get it and then get out of the way. I think it's like, what do you need to be successful? Make sure they get it and get out of the way. That's the other thing is just the listening and delivering. Yeah. You know, as you were talking, Julie, I was thinking back one thing uh, that you did just so exceptionally well. I'm thinking back to my own experience working in your organization is there are those one to many communication opportunities. Like you were talking about the power of 10, the power of a hundred when you're in a group setting, maybe it's a team quarterly meeting, what have you, and you're reinforcing that. But then there are those one-to-one relationships. And what Mm -hmm. you always brought into those is, is also you brought into the being in the moment and being engaged in the moment. And so what happens is inspiration when you know someone is listening, they're attentive. And then, as you said, they're asking the questions and they're looking for your feedback. Yeah, right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And when you're, and when you have that, like we did, Dan, at that, at that period of time in our, in our lives, I mean, it's just magic. It is, it is magic. And, um, you know, I've been on the other side of that where it's was definitely not magic. And it was, you know, it's so hard to get there. But when you have lived it, when you see it, you know it, and and you just you know what it what it looks like. So um I was I was very fortunate to have that early on in my career so that I could try and replicate that in other situations. And sometimes it wasn't easy. So but but I persevered because I always knew I knew I knew the power of it when you could harness it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And another aspect of your journey that really interesting to explore, obviously, as as a woman in in technology achieving great leadership success, would love to get your perspective on that journey in terms of diversity, equity, inclusion. How you've seen that play a role for you? Maybe uh, are there been challenges along the way? What, what, what is your perspective as you look back over your career? Oh my God, I could tell you so many stories, so many stories. Um, so just to, just to kick this off. So when I first started in the 1980s working at Carnation Company, um, the executive floor did not have a ladies room, only a men's room. So if you were in a meeting on the executive floor, you had to like go down to the seventh floor uh, to use the restroom. I mean, crazy, right? Oh my right? goodness, yeah. And then Carnation was bought by Nestle. Nestle was a Swiss company, very male dominated. The Swiss guys came in and I actually was in a meeting, you know, presenting and I had these Swiss Nestle guys ask me to go get the coffee. Yes, ask me to go get the coffee. So um, that was just stunning. Um, And there were were just two of us that were sort of women leader, director level types. Um, And it was, you know, we sort of laughed, but it was also just shocking. So, you know, fast forward, I have always been one of either the only one or one of two women on any executive team. Um, and you just, you just have to learn how to, how to deal with it. Every company culture is different. Um, even today, I'm, I'm the only woman on the executive team. 
uh, at Cricket. I was the only woman on the executive team at Super Value. I was one of two. Um, so it just, it just is, you know, it was what it was um, for so many years. And at U.S. West, as you know, U.S. West placed a very high premium on diversity and inclusion. Yes. Um, when you had an open position, you had to have a slate of candidates that was diverse before you could even start interviewing. Um, and that was instilled in me. Um, and I, you know, carry it forward to this day. Um, even, you know, even today, you know, it's like the demand for talent is tough and, um, you know, you need to, you need to expand your, your lens and just make sure you get, you know, the best possible talent. I learned a new term yesterday, um, neurodiversity. Have you heard of that, Dan? No, no. I'd love to hear more yeah, of your, your so take on that. This is, this is really interesting, but it's a new term. Um, and many large companies like, like Microsoft and Dell and, um, uh, Chevron, to name a few, have specific recruiting strategies around neurodiversity. Essentially, it's the umbrella term for people who are on the autistic spectrum, ADHD, um, and so forth that have been largely overlooked by traditional hiring and recruiting uh, strategies. But these are folks that, um, now that remote work is here to stay, you know, and they, you know, they have trouble sort of interacting and being successful in an office environment, yet they have really interesting skills around focus, pattern recognition, you know, a lot of, you know, they bring a lot of interesting, you know, skills to certain kinds of jobs. And I had never heard that term before. And so I'm thinking, okay, you know, for certain kinds of jobs, this is a new sort of pocket in the workforce that has been largely overlooked, but should be included where appropriate. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense and uh, just opens up new opportunities. So uh, really, yeah. really interesting. And as you were talking about some of your experiences, I got to admit, Julie, I was cringing. All right. And, <laughs> and you were going back and um, it's just amazing to, to, to think that that was even remotely right? considered acceptable, but it, right. but it, you know, in terms of our continuous pursuit to get better, I think it's important to have those extreme benchmarks because that's the painful reminder uh, that which we've come from. But it was definitely painful. And I'm curious, as you've been successful um, in terms of being, uh, I'll use the term role model, um, but do, have you felt um, an opportunity or desire from a mentoring perspective for uh, for other women that are earlier in their careers, is that, have, have you translated your your experience, your success into that? Has that been an important part of what yeah, you've done? Definitely, um, and it's you know there's been a lot written about that, and it's always it's always very tricky, right? This mentor mentee uh, relationship because it it can't be um, programmatic. You know, it kind of has to happen organically. Um, and I'll, you know, I'm, I'm always very willing and love to help and offer advice to younger, younger women in the workforce and, and have done so whenever I've had the opportunity. And I, I guess the, you know, I, I wish it were, um, 
I, I wish I could do more of it, I guess, you know, and it's, but it's hard. Sometimes people are, you know, they, either they are reticent to ask or, um, you know, it's, it, it's hard to do, but, um, I, there have been several along the way that I have really, you know, tried to be helpful, tried to be a sounding board and, you know, provide advice and perspective along the way. Cause you know, there's, there's nothing like the school of hard knocks to, <laughs> to, yes. to give, to give some perspective. Right. Absolutely. And so flipping that around in terms of mentoring that you've benefited from, have you had some, some big mentors? You may have mentioned one earlier, but is there a single piece of business advice that you have received that you feel has made a really significant difference for you? Uh, not a single piece. No, there, I would describe it more as a, you know, a, um, just a series of, you know, of smart pieces of advice along the way that have given me guidance on how to handle certain tricky situations. Um, and I've been lucky to have, you know, a couple, not a ton, but you know, two or three people that I could always count on and who would be, you know, willing to listen to, you know, here's the situation, how should I handle it? Um, and that, that has really benefited me, you know, to people who have more years of experience and who are wiser than I on um, the best way to handle, in, in some cases, pretty difficult uh, situations. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is valuable sometimes when you're in a situation consumed by a situation, sometimes just getting a perspective from someone who's a bit removed and, and, and they can sometimes see those, those spots that, that, that aren't so apparent, right? Because we're so focused on all of the dynamics of, of in the moment, whether it's emotions or, or, or just the, the, the business situation. So I think of that fresh perspective, having people you know you can turn to, boy, that's, that's a real confidence builder to just know that you've got people that you can turn to. It is. And you said something that was, that was really key, Dan, and that is that when you're in the middle of a maelstrom, you know, and you've been living, breathing, dealing with it for you know, a period of time and it is frequently very emotional and it's very hard to sort of figure out where true North is and how to rise above it and stay very calm and very clear on, you know, what you think the outcome can be. And I think just as a woman, um, you know, being calm and clear I mean, that was a piece of, that was a piece of advice that a, um, a leadership coach gave me at one point. And, and that has stuck with me, especially as a woman, mm -hmm. you can never get emotional because that's what people expect of women. Right. So calm and clear. And that has like, that's been a mantra in the back of my mind, always calm and clear. So yeah, that yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And as you look to the future, I mean, there are so many things going on in the world today that are uh, changing, unpredictable, lots of things that could get us out of that calm and clear state. But yeah, with right. all of that, as you look to the future, what makes you optimistic? 
Um, I, you know, I'm optimistic about, you know, the young people that I see um, and that I interact with and their, just their unbridled optimism around making the world a better place and putting their, their talents um, to work with companies and causes that will do that. You know, climate change comes to, to mind, right? So, and I'm, I'm super optimistic about that because that was not the way it was 30 or 40 years ago. So I'm, I'm very buoyed by uh, these, these young people. I, get, I, I think the other thing is I'm, you know, I kind of have a love-hate relationship with technology um, because, you know, half the time it just stymies me and I'm yeah. <laughs> always just struggling. But I, I, but I also think that it, you know, the power of technology to help us, you know, solve business problems, the power of technology and the marketing stack so that we can, you know, segment and manage customers and understand their lifetime value and their ROI and all of that amazing. So um, I guess technology would be the second thing. I'm, I'm, I'm super optimistic uh, about that. And, um, and, you know, I guess I should have a third thing. What is my third thing? <laughs> um, I, I, you know, I, I, I also, I just, I just have, you know, great optimism that, you know, people will make choices that benefit the the greater good instead of you know just their own self-interest um and that that will that will help us you know as a global community yeah that really resonates so as we start winding down our conversation julie do you have any other final advice for leaders that are really looking to elevate the overall performance of their organization um yeah, I, I mean, I, I do think it's about finding your why as your sort of like your mission and vision for the company and being really crystal clear on that. Um, I've been doing some work at Provoro around that and looking at other companies. And I find surprisingly that many great companies are not clear on that. They mix them up or they only have one or the other. You know, they're not they're not clear on the mission and the vision. Um, and so I think getting clarity around that and having it described in language that everyone in the organization can understand and talk about. So when they're with friends and neighbors, they can, those words come out of their mouth. It's not a bunch of like corporate gobbledygook. So that's number one, being very clear about your why, your mission, your vision as a company. Um, and then understanding how each team within the organization, how their work ladders up to the goal of the company. What is the objective for the year, for the next couple of years? And how does every team member know how their work, why it matters to the success of the company? That's, uh, I, I think that's number two. And then number three is at an individual level, really understanding what each person needs to be successful and making sure that you as a leader deliver on that and, and, and have that conversation at the very least so that you're listening and helping them be successful. So I think it's those three things, starting at the top and moving down to the individual level and 
making sure they they understand, you know, they have what they need to be successful and they know what they need to do. Yeah, that is some really sound advice. And Julie, I want to thank you again for sharing your journey and really the embodiment of versatile leadership, certainly in the marketing area, but also as a leader of organizations. And again, my gratitude to you, having had the benefit of working in your organization, what I took from that has kind of helped me on my own leadership journey and made me better. So thank you again. Oh, my pleasure, Dan. It's so fun to reconnect with you after all these years. And a reminder to everyone to uh, please go out and give us the gift of feedback to rate and review the podcast. You can easily do that out on Apple, Spotify, all the podcast platforms. And as always, make sure to visit marketimpactnow.com for the latest in business leadership perspectives. So long until next time.